You're listening to the Jefferson Exchange. I'm Eric Newman. Thanks for joining us. The JX starts today with the debrief where JPR reporters discuss the stories they've been covering this week, including local grassroots organizing and the upcoming Shasta County Supervisors election in March. I'm here with reporters Roman Battaglia and Justin Higginbottom. Good morning. Good morning. Hey there. JPR reporter Jane Vaughn is out today, so we're going to start with a conversation I recorded with her yesterday about a feature that she published this week. Jane, you published a story this week about local grassroots organizing efforts that seem to be springing up in Southern Oregon and Northern California and kind of all over the place. Why is this important? Because there's a lot of them happening and we have some big elections coming up. So as you said, there's been a ton of recalls and citizens petitions happening recently in our region. I'm going to run through a little list real quick just to give you a a sense of them. So Jackson County has three measures that would change the county commissioner positions and their salaries. Uh, In Redding, a group tried to recall two members of a local school district. The Grants Pass mayor survived a recall attempt this fall. Brookings successfully recalled two city councilors and the mayor in November. Shasta County residents are trying to recall one of their county supervisors. And a group in Josephine County has a proposal on the ballot to change the county's charter. So there's a lot going on. Obviously, it's also a presidential election year that's coming up in November. And then we've got two primaries coming up in the two states that we cover. So March 5th in California and then May 21st in Oregon. Okay, yeah, clearly a lot of uh, grassroots energy um, out there in the communities where we broadcast. Um, So what did you find in your reporting uh, of this feature? So the main questions that I had were, is it unusual to have this much organizing? And if so, why is it happening now? Because there are always ballot measures and and things like that happening, but it does seem to be increasing. And it's interesting because obviously we've had a lot going on in in the past few years with COVID and Donald Trump's loss in the 2020 presidential election. Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of political dysfunction going on nationally. And then obviously it's another presidential election year. So it makes sense that a lot of people are just frustrated and tired of politics. But it's really interesting that rather than just giving up on the whole thing, it seems that some people are now turning to the local level to make change there rather than focusing on the national stuff. Hmm. And so the people that I talked to were saying that government is more approachable at the local level. They feel like they can actually do something about it and they feel like their voices is, is heard there. I talked to some residents who are frustrated with the way that government is going right now and they're just looking for some more control hmm. and they feel they can can get that in that way. Um People are sort of realizing that city councils and county commissioners and school boards actually make a lot of really important decisions for local communities. So they're figuring maybe we focus and and spend some time and money on that. And, you know, conservative groups have been focusing on on school boards for a few years now and, and targeting them for things like critical race theory. But it seems like now more liberal groups are sort of catching up. So everyone is is more invested locally. Hmm. Um, the Jackson County effort that I mentioned, um, the woman who's the chief filer for the ballot measures, says that that sort of effort has been talked about for 30 years and has just now gotten off the ground, which I think means something that it's, it's happening now. Um, but one one drawback that I did hear about was that the divisiveness of national politics can also kind of trickle down and become local too. Hmm. So I talked to Mary Rickert, who's a supervisor in Shasta County, and their meetings are often pretty chaotic and have a lot of shouting and arguments. So that does seem to be one drawback is that just as we see the divisiveness on the national level, that can sometimes uh, happen at the local level too. Gotcha. Um, So you've been following all these different races, um, different um, election efforts. What are you going to be watching for next? 
So we have all these elections coming up, so I'll be watching for what happens at the primaries and then at the, the general election. Um, we found out that the Jackson County group just this week counted up all their signatures, and they do have enough signatures to get their ballot measures on the ballot in May. So we'll have the Jackson County effort, the Josephine County effort, and the Shasta County recall all on the ballot coming up in the next hmm. few months. So we'll be watching to see if this local political organizing continues. And it's just nice, honestly, to have a little bit of a hopeful moment that we can still work together with our neighbors and, and make some um, political change in our communities for the better. Okay. Thanks so much, Jane. Thank you. Now we're going to turn to the California primary election. That's coming right up in just a few weeks. Um, ballots are already out to voters. Uh, Roman, let's turn to you and your reporting on the primary election in Shasta County. The Board of Supervisors there is uh, controlled by a group of far-right politicians who've done some controversial things in recent years. Three of the five supervisors are up for election in March, and one other supervisor is facing a recall. So first, could you just tell us how this election that's coming up could change the balance of power in the county? Yeah, I mean, this election is a lot more contentious uh, than people realize. Uh, not only is there this recall election against County Supervisor Kevin Cry, you know, but three other supervisors are up for election. This, you know, they've been controlled by this group of far-right politicians for years, and they've done some stuff like trying an expensive effort to hand count ballots in the county, which got overturned by a state law last year. Um, they fired the county health officer for practically no reason um, and a bunch of other stuff. Um, so cry and then one of those seats, Patrick Jones, are part of this far right majority and then the other two are in the moderate minority on this five person board. Um, but obviously this primary election could change that. The way that county elections work in California, um, we could either know the new makeup of the board in March or between zero and four seats could be up for election in November. Okay, zero to four. That sounds like there's a lot of possible outcomes in the works. Uh, can you just explain that? Yeah, so you know, for the three supervisors that are up for election this year, their seats are first up for election in the primary, which is in March. Um, so multiple candidates are running in all of the different seats, including candidates that are trying to unseat this far-right majority. And so if any candidate wins more than 50% of the vote in the primary, which is 50% plus one vote, they win the election outright and mm -hmm. they don't have to go to November. But if nobody gets more than half the votes, then the top two candidates in that race will advance to a runoff election in November. Um, so there's a lot of different outcomes. So, you know, we've actually saw this happen with Kevin Cry's original election a couple of years ago. Him and Aaron Resner didn't get more than 50 percent, so they went to a runoff in November. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for example, Kevin Cry could survive his recall and Patrick Jones could win his election outright. And that would mean that no matter what, the far right majority would retain control of the board. It doesn't matter what happens to the other two seats. But, you know, if everyone heads to the elections in November, we won't know yet what the makeup of the board will look like. Okay. So there's a, at least a decent chance that this current far-right group of politicians um, could lose the control, the majority on the board. Why are residents trying to recall Supervisor Kevin Cry? Yeah, they, they basically say that he's kind of failed to deliver on what he promised during the campaign. They say that he's, you know, wasted taxpayer money um, doing that hand count ballot effort. You know, he's taken money from an out-of-state billionaire, um, Reverge Anselmo, who's kind of been funding a lot of these far-right politicians in the county for years. And he hasn't been transparent about meetings he's taken with prominent election deniers, including Mike Lindell. Um, you know, he went on the taxpayer dime to fly across the country to meet with him. Um, and 
they're basically saying he's been focusing on the wrong things instead of working on homelessness and public safety, which are the actual you know issues facing the county right now. And so how does Kevin Cry refute these claims? Yeah, he basically says that he's addressed those problems. Um, you know, his big claim and the big, if you go to his website posing this recall, the big thing, the first thing you see is a giant photo of Governor Gavin Newsom. He claims that the governor is trying to get him recalled so that he can appoint a Democrat to the Board of Supervisors who would be loyal to the governor. Um, that's his whole claim. All of the supervisors on the board in Shasta County are Republican. It's a very red county. So that's what he's claiming. And according to California law, that is something that Newsom can do. Um, you know, He's appointed supervisors to county boards across the state, but he's also not appointed them in some counties, including in Glen and Modoc counties, which are more Republican leaning. Um, so, you know, the recall campaign against him is also opposed to an appointment. They don't want it. They've wrote a letter to Newsom asking him not to make an appointment to the seat. They want voters to decide this in November for his replacement. And you know, if nobody is appointed, the board would essentially be deadlocked two to two on you know some of these more controversial proposals for most of the year. Okay, we will continue watching uh, this and see what happens on March fifth. March fifth. Thanks, Roman. Yeah. Um, Justin, we're going to turn to you. You had a story this week about a Burmese restaurant in. Ashland. Um, why did you decide to report on that this month in particular? Yeah, so uh, so this month is the third year anniversary of a coup in Myanmar. Um, that, that That's a country in Southeast Asia, and it's also called Burma. Um, that's an old name. Um, and basically, since its independence from British rule in the 40s, it's had to deal with decades of really harsh military rule and dictatorships. Um, the country was pretty isolated, especially if you compare the country to its neighbors like Thailand. Um, and that all began to change, though, about 10 years ago when the milita military gave up some power. Um, it had elections, and the country started opening up. People were pretty optimistic, actually, in the country um, about its future. Then in February of 2021, the military retook control. Their party lost pretty badly in elections, and this younger generation of Burmese who grew up in a more democratic Myanmar haven't accepted that um, largely. And they've ro risen up and they've organized. And since then, there's been a widespread civil war in the country between the military and its supporters and pro-democratic forces. Okay. And you clearly know a lot about the conflict there. Um, uh, you were covering this conflict before you came to Southern Oregon. Is that right? Yeah. So before I came to Ashland, I was reporting on the country. Um, so when I moved here, one of the first things I did because I was craving Burmese food is I looked to see if there were any restaurants, Burmese restaurants. And amazingly, there there is. There's a small restaurant called Razi Authentic Burmese Kitchen in town. Um, it's like one of the only places between Sacramento and Portland, basically. Um, and, you know, the, the U.S. has a lot of immigrants from Myanmar. I basically want to see how they were dealing with this trouble back home. Uh, the family that runs this restaurant in Ashland is from Myanmar's Kachin state. It's this uh, mountainous region in the north. And the landscape, actually, it doesn't look so different than, than Ashland. There's snow-capped mountains, and it's it's quite lovely. Um, but they've, they've been stuck basically watching from afar as this struggle goes on in their country. And they keep in touch with their family and loved ones who are still there. And they hear about just how the country is struggling, not only because of the war, but because the economy has, has basically collapsed. And what I also found is that they find ways to support their, their family back home, um, as well as humanitarian groups operating in Myanmar. 
So they send money home, which, which a lot of Myanmar expats do. Um, I learned that money coming from overseas, like from the United States, is really important, especially to these pro-democracy groups. I spoke with Angela Webb, who runs the restaurant, and she said people in Myanmar aren't waiting for the rest of the world to help them. It has boiled down to, at this moment, realization to every Myanmar citizen that are for the democracy is that we're on our own. Like, we would have to fight for our freedom and we have to earn it ourselves. Hmm. What do you hope listeners take away from this story? Well, I hope it provides just a small, it's a very complex conflict to understand that, but I hope it provides a, a small insight into what's going on in Myanmar. Um, right now, there's a lot of conflict around the world, so their situation, I think, has been a, a bit underreported. And also, their food is amazing. Um, if you're craving Burmese food or if you've never had it, their tea leaf salad is is really incredible. Okay. Uh, Eric, let's turn to you. You also covered some news this week about a pile of money going to the Klamath Basin. Um, what happened? That's right. Um, so on Wednesday, the, the U.S. Department of the Interior announced that $72 million is going to go to the Klamath Basin. That's the region along the Oregon-California border. It's heavily agricultural. Um, it, the, the upper basin is kind of the area around Klamath Falls, and that's where the uh, you know the headwaters of the Klamath River is. So um, a whole bunch of money. It's going to go to fund environmental restoration uh, and projects to modernize agricultural infrastructure there. Interesting. Um, why, why is all this money going to the Klamath region? So this, as many listeners probably know, this is an area that's experienced um, pretty severe droughts in recent years. There's been ongoing conflict over water between agricultural groups, Native American tribes. Um, there is a series of national wildlife refuges there. Um, essentially, there is not enough water for all these different groups. Um, we first kind of got word that there was a bunch of money headed this way uh, back in 2021, which is when the bipartisan infrastructure law was passed at the federal level. Um, at that point, the, the announcement was that $160 million is going to go to the Klamath Basin over the next five years or since 2021. Um, it was the largest investment in the area ever. Um, and so now that money is actually going out um, for some kind of prioritized projects on the ground. Yeah, interesting. Um, and just quickly tell us, it sounds like there was also an agreement signed between Native American tribes and agricultural groups in the region. That's right. So kind of parallel to this um, announcement of the money was a MOU signed by three different Native American tribes and the Klamath Water Users Association. And it seems like the takeaway is just that um, these different groups that have been opposed historically think that they will do better by working together uh, on these really persistent issues of drought in the region. Great. Thanks, Eric. Uh, that's going to be it for this week's debrief. Thanks for listening. You can reach the newsroom with comments on our coverage or suggestions for things that we should cover in the future through our news tip line, which you can find on our website at ijpr.org. You can also find this program and more on our website at jeffexchange.org or subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and all the other platforms. 